HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We will look back at the year in wine 2021, our annual review. We'll taste a bunch of wines Josh selected and sip throughout the show for our discussion and weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green is the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine since 1986. The magazine was founded in 1982, and Josh eventually purchased it in 1989. Josh also serves as wine critic at Wine and Spirits for Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Italy, and Napa Valley, to name a few. You can also find Josh's commentary and long-form stories in every issue, Josh and his staff taste over 15,000 bottles annually, and Wine and Spirits is the only recipient of five James Beard Awards for Excellence in Wine Writing. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Josh. Hey, Sam. It's great to be here with you. All right. We are talking to Josh remotely. Uh, Many times we've done it in the studio, but because of the pandemic and things, we've decided to do it remotely. Josh, where are you? I'm in my office in New York, actually. I was okay. I had I, to come in for some meetings, um, and so I, I did end up coming into into the city. But um, right, I know you were in Massachusetts yep. for a while. All right, so we invite Josh on the show every December to look back at the year in wine. I can't think of anybody better to spend the time with doing that. And I just wanted to remind everyone that this is our sixth consecutive year with Josh looking back at the year in wine. So that's awesome, Sam. It's really yeah, cool. This to is do, a bit really of a, cool to do a, a tradition. Row. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I couldn't think of anybody uh, better. All right. So off to the races, Josh. 
2021 was quite the year for many reasons. I'm sure you won't deny that. Um, We're into our second year of the pandemic. Things look like they were quieting down. Now there's a new variant looming. Um, But I want to start our discussion with another issue, and that is climate change. Um, It seems to only get the attention of the public when there's a fire, Mm -hmm. frost, or a drought in the news. Um, I think this is now a critical problem in our lives. Not sure everybody thinks that way. Um, So you and I talked offline, and and the top of the list for both of us was to discuss climate change. And you had a good idea, and that was to have the discussion through the lens of some of the wines that we're going to be tasting today, um, including wines from Champagne um, and California and New York State. Yep. So that being said, this is a very, I'm never this broad on my questions, but climate change is the topic. Tell me where and how you want to start. Do you want to start with one of the wines? Where do you want I to think go? It, I think it would be interesting to start with the champagne. Yeah, because okay. it really, um, it's a major shift. I and mean, it's champagne is going through so many major shifts. Um, but this wine really shows one of them. Um or just like a, a different perspective on the on the vineyards of Champagne than what has been traditional in the past. Um, so the first wine that that I wanted you to taste with me is Rotor's new collection 242. They had for many, many years since I think it was in, I think they introduced Brut Premier in the 80s. Um, right. Maybe, maybe a little bit before, I think it was in the 80s. Um, and that was their um, multi-vintage blend. Um, and it was made with a lot of fruit from outside sources. All of their vintage wines are made with their own, from their own vineyards, but the Brut Premier was made with outside fruit, and it was also made with some malolactic fermentation. So it was rounder and softer than some of their other wines, um, than all of their other wines, really. Right. And that wine had been designed to be consistent year after year, which is something that Champagne in general, the big houses in general had always done. Um, So I'm sure you recall like in the 90s and early 2000s, we started seeing grower champagnes coming in. Yep. And we've had a lot of grower guys on and we've had deep discussions. So we've seen that change. They're making amazing wines and we never really had access to them in any major way before. Um, So the growers have become an important part of the champagne market here in the States. And at the same time, a lot of the big houses have really bolstered their farming and, you know, handled their farming in a very different way. So Rotor has been working with developing organic and biodynamic farming for Cristal. And I I forget which vintage exactly it is of Cristal. It's the first vintage that is um, biodynamic, completely grown. Um, but it's pretty extraordinary that they've been able to do that. Um, and it's a fairly recent release. I think it might be the 12, it might be the 13, one of the two. I'm not, I don't recall exactly. Um, right. But they continue to purchase grapes for 242. They had been continuing to purchase grapes for Group Premier, and now they're continuing for 242. But they changed the way they do it. And so now they treat all their 242 growers. Well, see, I shouldn't call it 242. I should call it collection. Because 242 is basically 
designed the, as is the 2000, 2017 vintage base. The annual, each yeah. vintage will have a different number, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's the 242nd vintage from Rotor 2017. Right. Um, so when they when they started putting together this group of, of growers that they're going to work with for this particular wine, they make this wine separately from each grower and they keep them separate and they taste them with the growers so the growers can see what they're doing with their wines. And ah. so they really treat it, they treat it the same way individual lots like they treat Cristal. Um, so that's, I think, a really significant change for them in the way that they're dealing with this wine. The other part of it is that issue of consistency. Um, when Jean-Baptiste Lacayon brought this wine out, um, I spent about an hour or two on, on a Zoom call with him about it. We talked about how he developed it. And for him, it came out of a challenge that he faced in 2002, when it was such a great vintage and he had to actually make a lesser wine for Brut Premier than he would have wanted to do in order to keep it consistent with the previous and the future ones. And that's Just when he really started. Because it was a about, house style type yep, thing, right? Exactly. Which yeah. is which is what all the champagne houses were really up right. to at that time. Um, so that's when he really started thinking, how can we change this? And he was talking with 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 his team at Rotor about it. And in 2012, he started producing a perpetual reserve using wine from each vintage, adding wine from each vintage into that perpetual reserve. So um, by 17, he had enough wine and, a, and enough of a quality of that and character of that wine to feel that he could start releasing this wine, which is one third of that. It's 10% oak aged reserves and the balance is all 2017 harvest. So, so it's Josh, it's, yeah. it's, basically three b blends it's like a perpetual reserve mm -hmm. a reserve and a base vintage type thing yes exactly okay but the key and that, is that, that gives him not the leeway to make a house style but to do what he wants to do right it gives him the leeway to make the best wine he can in a particular vintage right so it gives him the leeway to behave like a grower Right. Rather than like a big house, he can behave like a grower to make the best wine he can in that vintage. Right. And that's where, that's where I see this as a, as a climate change wine, because 20 years ago, you couldn't have done that. You couldn't have relied on each individual vintage plus your perpetual reserve to produce the wine that was your standard bearer. It would be too risky. Right. You'd have a nasty vintage come along, or you'd have a 2003 come along, um, which was really hot. Um, now he's getting he's getting enough consistency from each. He's getting enough consistency in his ripeness, and he can work with enough growers who are getting enough consistency in their ripeness, and really um, train them in, in terms of what he wants from their from their fruit to be able to create this wine each year reliably. It doesn't mean it's going to be the same wine each year. It just means that he can reliably produce a top right. quality wine. I think that's more exciting. Yeah. You know, each each vintage, you know, is going to be an expression of, you know, the vintage, the climate, all of that. Um, and uh, do you agree that he had the foresight almost a decade ago to start thinking about this project so that he had, you know, some of the reserves now to do this? Well, um, Le Cayon for me is one of the most brilliant 
people working in Champagne today. So yes, I think he has got tremendous foresight. Um, he he really, um, you know, I, I, I spend more time with growers than with houses when I visit Champagne. Right. And I like to visit with him because, as I say, his perspective is as a grower. He he really, you know, I, I would say that Bollinger is very similar in that in that sense. Their perspective is as a grower. Right. Um, and, you know, for, for big houses, both Bollinger and, and Rotor are making top, top quality wine as growers. Um, so I think that it, it takes tremendous foresight to, to create a perpetual reserve, but that's the sort of thing that you see more often with growers. They, right. they tend to rely on a perpetual reserve. Right. To, that, that was their yeah. mindset, yep. you know, before the, now, I don't. I don't think we're downplaying it, but talk to me in general about champagne, and it comes back to Rotorer. I mean, how many people are farming organically and biodynamically? I mean, I know there's a movement towards that, but isn't there still, you know, a lot of there's I, a lot I, of disease pressure in champagne, which that, makes farming right. organically and biodynamically very challenging. Um. There are people doing it. I don't know the percentages, um, but I do know that it is um, that Lut Resiné is is more typical of you know I mean of top quality growers who want to be able to produce a crop every year um, because there are all these disease pressures with um, oidium or mildew or um, you know, and those pressures of, are climate i mean it could mm-hmm. be moist cool you know th- thing the type of climate where things like mildew are more prevalent right than a dry napa or something mm-hmm. yeah they they are not in a desert like you know napa is basically yeah they have like to deal desert. with this mm-hmm. and typically people just treat it mm-hmm. <laughs> and like you said it's more difficult yeah um, but i think that I, I think there's been a sea change to some degree, um, in in the seventies, there was a lot of chemical farming in Champagne. Yes, and um, I think that's there's much, at least my impression. I again, I don't have statistics on it, but my impression is that people are much more aware of their farming and the impact of their farming on their environment and their fruit. So, do you think? Do you think, as a generalization, the grower movement was more um, in tune to you know, organics, biodynamic, biodynamics, regenerative farming than the bigger houses, even um, though the bigger houses I like I think you can, find, you can find a, a lot more people in the grower movement. And I don't think there are a lot, but you can find a lot more in the grower movement who are farming biodynamically or organically, and they're making some superb wines. But a, a number of them are down in the Ob, which is in the southern part of the district, which is a little more friendly to that kind of farming. Right. Um, and the other part of it is, is that the, when you talk about a grower movement, um, I think that that's a signal of climate change, that the growers for, for centuries sold to, you know, since the 19th century, were selling to the big houses because many of them could not successfully produce a good crop every year for, them, for their own wine. So they relied on being able to sell to the big houses, which by the 80s and 90s, you began to see more consistent crops from people that made them 
a little more fearless about going out on their own. Now, of course, there were small houses that were doing this for years, but more of them began to do it because they could. Right. Um, it wasn't in, financial suicide. Right. Um, in Champagne, and give me your take on this, um, because of climate change, we're experiencing warmer winters, which inevitably creates an early start to the growing season. Mm-hmm. You know, they potentially grow and mature faster. Is that, and you just brought up a good point because there's different, you know, sections of champagne. Is is that as big a problem in champagne as anywhere? In champagne and burgundy, it's becoming a big problem because of frost. And um, Chablis was devastated by frost. Um, right. You know, Champagne, if, if, if in these regions you get crops developing early and then you get a really cold snap, it can be devastating. And especially if the cold is cold enough to not be something that's readily manageable by some of the techniques that people have in place. So there's a lot of, um, whew, it's really, it's scary what's going on with frost. Um, but there's a lot of technology being introduced, including, um, we just had one of our editors, um, Corey Warren was in the Loire um, last month, and he saw um, a producer that had wires in their, um, on their vines that were heating the vines from like, you know, by wire, which I've never seen anywhere before. Were they electric or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've ne- we've never seen that. And gotta... it only works in a certain kind of environment, but in that particular environment, it seemed to work. So there, I think there, I think that we'll see, especially in France and in cooler parts of France, we'll see a lot of technological attempts to deal with this growing, well, it's not a growing problem, but it is a, it, it can be, the devastation of the problem can be increasingly greater because of the early springs. Right. So the early bud break is susceptible to, you know, potentially early frost. I know yeah, that's the plants repetitive, are still tender that's, then, and, and then you, you lose shot. the crop. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about this as we get to other wines, but champagne is not the region where you could pivot and plant other varietals, really. <laughs> you know, it's basically... Well, you can't, but there is um, there is always making still wine. Um, and people right. are making still wine in Champagne, um, as they had before there was ever bubbles in Champagne. They made still Pinot Noir. It's um, one of the great secrets, some of the still wines of Champagne. Mm-hmm. I think you and I tasted one a couple of years ago. You brought it into the studio. I'm yes. pretty sure we did. I think um, it was, was probably the Eliorier wine. Or, yes, or, yeah. it was. It was very interesting, and everyone forgets that champagne is wine. So. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so champagne is an interesting area. Did um, you taste let, this wine? Let, Have you tasted this wine yet? Yeah, the uh, two forty two. Mm-hmm. I have it in front of me. I love it. To me, it's um, there's a richness to it that I wouldn't expect from this. There's a floral aspect to it mm-hmm. um, that I like a lot. Um, Do you recall the Brut Premier? I don't. I'm sure I've had it many, many times. I can't recall it. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. And I know this is its replacement, but it's really, as you stated, a different, you know, a different wine. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, 
Um, Brut Premier always was a fuller-bodied wine. Yeah. Um, and this wine is is much finer in its in its structure to me. And as you say, it's really floral. The, the um, it's almost like bee pollen or something in the flavor. Yeah. Um, and like almost like yellow orchards or yep. a big, you know, where, where bees are floating around and mm-hmm. there's blooming flowers. The the Brut Premier, I remember a little, was a little rounder. Definitely rounder. Um, even though yeah. this is rich, I, I guess because of the blending. Um, this one is, is rich but floral, and it's pretty precise. It's, it's, I, I think one of the things you need to mention, Josh, is that well, you did mention it, but putting it together, the way these guys farm and make wine, um, the fact that uh, the pricing is terrific, right? I mean, for this quality of wine. The for this quality, quality of wine, I mean, this wine is, um, I, well, I have to say that I think that the Rotor wines across the board, you know, I mean, Cristal is an expensive wine. Yeah. But the vintage wines that they have are incredible deals. Yeah. And this this wine for its quality is an incredible deal. Um, yeah, I'm, I think um, this is sixty five dollars a bottle. I think you know at I times you can get it for a little less. Well, I think you can. That's their full SRP. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, you can. I think you can definitely buy it for less. Um, most champagne SRPs are more than what you would find them in, at the store, and in, right. I think it's intentional. They don't want you. They don't want you to think that you're getting ripped off by the store. They want you to think you're getting a good deal. Right. So, so that's that's the Louis Roderer. Collection 242 Champagne. The 242 is the vintage. That's what's out now. Um, expect the collection to go on and, you know, you'll see a 243, 244. And, you know, as we talk about climate change, you know, how this particular um, champagne and wine, you know, was affected by that. Let's move to another wine. Josh, do you want yeah, well, to do let's just. This? Let's just talk a little bit about a little bit more about champagne and climate change for a second. Um, no rush. And that has to do with the fact that England has become a major source of sparkling wine. Yep. And um, it's right across the channel from Champagne, and they have a similar clay and limestone mix of soils in in that southern part of England where um, where the industry has developed. And it's really, um, you know, the UK used to be a huge market for champagne, and now there it's a huge market for English sparkling wine. So that, to me, is a major um, marker of climate change. When you think about wine and vineyards being, you know, the exemplars of what's actually going on with the climate that that we don't necessarily see on a day to day basis, but the vines right. certainly do, and. Um, that's something that's been developing since really since the nineties um, and is now booming. So it's um, I think a really interesting new aspect of the wine industry to see England. So clarify successful. one thing for me because of, you know, location, longitude, latitude, you know, that it's across the way from champagne and they have, you know, proper soils for growing similar to champagne. They are producing, um, good wines, correct? But my question is, is it because of climate change that now they're really starting to produce? Um, it's, because, or- it's because climate has allowed them to 
produce vine, you know, to, to grow vines successfully and commercially viably. More so, now than 20, 30, 40 years ago, you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a very big story. I mean, um, I think that, you know, and that does lead into the next wine. In fact, um, when, I don't know if you remember Orly Ashenfelter, who used to do, um, he may still do it. He had a, um, a newsletter about Bordeaux vintages. I don't remember. He would track the weather in Bordeaux and, and predict the quality of the vintage by the weather. Wow. Um, really, I he's don't a, recall. He's a, he's a brilliant economist down based in Princeton. And I used to do a lot of tasting with him because I was down there as well. And, and we became friends. Right. And, and he introduced me to a guy, I think he was from Columbia, who was, an, I, I believe, he was either a geologist or he was an economist. Um, he'd written a story or he'd done a study of the Finger Lakes in the 50s and 60s and how they were becoming how climate change was at that time was driving planting up there. Wow. Um, and, or making it viable to plant up there. And this was, um, this study came out really early. I mean, I think, that, I think his study came out in the sixties. And so we think, we think a lot about climate change being a thing that we talk about now, but did, did he use the were, words climate change? I think he used the words global warming. I don't okay. recall. I mean, either I, one. This was, yeah, I, 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 I was just doing a, a seminar for, um, I was participating in a seminar on, on um, tasting climate change yesterday. And uh-huh. for the last few, few months, I've been searching and searching and searching for this document because I know it exists somewhere in my office. <laughs> Did you find I it? Could, I could not find it. And I tried oh, to get in touch with Orly. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, because at the time it didn't, it, I, I just sort of, I read, this, I read the, the document and, and then filed it somewhere. And it's, Probably somewhere in my file cabinet, but yeah, my file cabinet is not active these days with my computer since that's my yeah. file cabinet now. Um, but it it was a story that came out, and then um, and at that time, you know, Constantine Frank was was moving in with vinifera grapes there, and um, a lot of people have since planted vinifera there, and some people have to mound them to protect them. But um, it's become, you know if you're close enough to the lake and you get the lake effect of the warmth and you know these are very very deep lakes, right? And so they they do warm the shores and a lot of people have their vines planted right on the shore and that protects them during the winter. Um, there are extraordinary wines coming out of the Finger Lakes, so um, that's why I wanted to show this wine because I, for me Herman Weimer and you know Fred Morwath and Oscar Binky working there they're like the really the leaders in creating the platform for great Finger Lakes wines. I mean, there, there are a number of people making great Finger Lakes wines. I think that they have set the standard. Right. And so we have in front of us the Herman J. Weimer mm-hmm. Vineyard HJW Bio. It's called Riesling. It's a Riesling. Yep. And it's from the 2019 vintage. Yep. So this is a wine that comes from the vineyard behind the, the cellar. So the cellar is right on Seneca Lake, but on the, um, on the southwestern shore. And they have other vineyards further northwest on the lake. Um, the cellar is closer to the lake than the vineyard. The vineyard is a little up the hill, so it's not as protected. 
Um, right. But this is the place where Merwath first began to play with organics. Um, Weimer might have been playing with organics there as well. I'm not really sure. But then he um, developed a biodynamic block at that vineyard. And that's where this wine comes from, is the biodynamic block. So they have sheep that graze in there. They have um, a viticulturalist from, from um, a Dutch viticulturist who's been helping them. I'm going to screw up his name, Thijs Verschuren. Um, who had worked on biodynamics in Loire, and he's come over and since 14 been helping them develop um, their biodynamic working, their biodynamic farming at HJW. Um, and so that's now 33 acres of that of that vineyard that's biodynamic, um, which is awesome. Wait, so and, the, is it called the HJW yes. vineyard? Or, it's called the HJW And you're vineyard saying because, that's 35 acres? 33 of the acres of it are biodynamic. Okay. That's pretty significant. Yeah. And are there plans to convert everything else eventually? Or I don't know. I know that there are probably plans to continue develop. I mean, it's been an, it's been an ongoing process. So I think that they're expanding it as they can. So I, I wrestle with this question and I talk to people about it. You know, when I have a chance to talk to the Pascaline Lapeltiers or, you know, I read about it, um, you know, when you talk about organic and then even make the bigger commitment to biodynamic, can you tell me what you think farming that way does to the wines? You know, and there's a big assumption and usually the commitment that in the cellar, you know, there's virtually no intervention. So there's a whole mindset of making it. But a, bi- a biodynamic, biodynamic farming practices, producing grapes, and, you know, we're in the Finger Lakes now. Mm-hmm. What's it doing to this Riesling? So I think that it's hard to say that organic or biodynamic farming impacts the wine per se. Okay. I think that sensitive farming impacts the wine and biodynamic farming is a practice of sensitive farming by many of the people who engage in it. There are people who engage in biodynamic farming who are not particularly sensitive, but there are a number who do, who, who use it as a structure for thinking about their vineyard, thinking about their relationship to their vineyard, thinking about the relationship of the surrounding environment to their vineyard and the biodiversity surrounding them to their vineyard and the moon and stars and everything else, you know, right. gravity, Which is all sorts biodynamics. of stuff. So, I mean, it's really, it's really about sensitivity to what's going on around you. And so, so people, wait, clear something up. You said just a minute or two ago, there are bio, biodynamic farmers that are not necessarily sensitive. Yeah, just give me a, examples a, of things, you know, there's no sensitivity to. Well, I think that, in, and I don't want to name any names because I don't think it's really you fair. You don't have to. But I think that there are people who have adopted biodynamics out of a marketing strategy. Ah, okay. I'm very glad for them to do it because I think it's good for the planet. I don't think it necessarily helps their wines per se. You know, it, it may change them. It definitely changes them, whether it makes them better. Um, biodynamics will improve a good site, the wines from a good site, and it will probably make wines from a bad site worse because it will, it will 
um, magnify the character of the site because you are you are emphasizing the life of the soil, the life of the vine, the life of the surrounding flora and fauna, and you are really trying to create this very engaged environment. So if you if you create this very engaged environment, that's a really cruddy environment for growing grapes. It's going to show up in your wine as a bad thing. Right. Um, <laughs> that that's an interesting point. Um, also, you know, one of the questions I want you to address, you know, at any point is, you know, what can the winemaker, what can the consumer do, you know, what can everyone do, you know, to sort of pitch into climate change? I just read an article that, you know, jets are one of the worst things. Take less, mm -hmm. you know, flights on jets and things like that. But I think, the, I think the first thing that we as an industry need to figure out how to do is convince wine buyers to buy lightweight bottles. That you can okay. have a top quality wine in a lightweight bottle and you don't need a heavy glass bottle that weighs as much of them as a magnum to prove that you have a high quality wine. And if, if, if I'm out buying wine and I pick up a bottle and it weighs a ton, I'm not going to buy it. it Josh, just, you know, a lot of that was vanity, right? It looked cool or... Ego. Right? I mean, it has nothing yeah. to do with the preservation of the wine. Oh, of course not. No, it has yeah. nothing to do with the wine at all. So it's just it has to sort do, of it has a to do silly with the ego of the winemaker can... and the ego of the wine buyer. Right. So there are people who feel that they need to prove their worth by the weight of the bottle if they're moving around. And, <laughs> you know, I don't get it, but that's something that is important to people. And I think yeah. that if people can break away from that for the sake of the planet, we'd all be better off. But there are a lot of things that people won't do for the sake of the planet. So I don't hold out a whole lot of hope that it's going to change immediately. But it really is, you know, I mean, it's the, the simplest no qualitative change change that could go on you know it's not going to it's not going to it's not going to affect anything about the wine at all it's purely a shift in packaging that should be taking place and it it doesn't sound you know hard i mean that's nope. an easy one to take and i've read of late there's even glass and bottle shortages mm -hmm. there are <laughs> So if you could take a bottle that, you know, is so huge and make two or three from the same amount of, uh, you know, glass, I mean, that, that's a good thing. I mean, does anything else come to mind? In terms of what consumers can do? Yeah. To, or, um, or, yeah. Well, um, I certainly think that a lot more consumers are aware of sustainable farming um, and are looking to buy wines that are sustainably farmed, whether it's organic, biodynamic sustainable certifications, um, whatever it may be. So awareness. Uh, awareness, yeah. And I think that the, the issue of, you know, I mean, chemical farming versus organic farming versus dynamic farming, people will call it conventional farming. I prefer to call it chemical intensive or, and sometimes, sometimes it's really chemical averse and people still are using some chemicals, but rather than using a lot of copper and sulfur that they have to use under organics, they're finding less intensive chemicals to use that don't fall under organics, but still right. create less of a, um, a problem for the environment. 
So I'm not certain that organics is necessarily in all places the right solution. I think there are sensible, reasonable solutions that are less um, less problematic for the environment than right. some, sometimes organic can be. It doesn't have to be black and white, organic or not. Yeah. There, there are ways to uh, approach it. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So, if, so I think any, if, if, if consumers can be looking at the back of the bottle to see if, it's, if a wine is certified for its farming, that's a positive thing. Right. You know, if you can buy something that's been certified for its farming, you at least know that the impacts are going to be minimized. But Josh, so you and I have been in a supermarket a million times and for about 10, 15 years, the word natural on food has been thrown around so easily and it means nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, when wineries talk about either, you know, in their materials or on their website or even on the bottle about sustainability. I mean, is that potentially a buzzword that can mean something for real or mean nothing? Well, I think that people do toss that word around. Um, There are sustainable certifications. Okay. And those certifications do have rules, regulations that you can research, find out about. They are, um, they do provide some level of commitment on the part of the grower to um, diminish impact on the land. And um, basically, any kind of sustainable program like that is designed to diminish impact so that people working 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now can work. Um, And so I think that if you see a sustainable certification that has some meaning. I can't tell you exactly what that meaning is. I could tell you what the meaning of an organic certification is or a biodynamic certification right. um, more, more readily. But I, um, I just was in a discussion about this yesterday, as I say, and, and um, the position of the California people with sustainable agriculture is that there is a global certification, a global meaning of sustainability I'm not sure I can. Ex- I'm not sure I can express exactly what that is, which is I think the problem you're talking about. It's a little bit mushy and a little bit of a buzzword. Not in a good way, right? Yeah. I mean, if it was easy to express, it would be a good thing. It's not mm-hmm. where it should be. Is that well? Sort I think of what it's. You're I think it's actually easy to express. It's, it's not it's, right. It's that it is. It's general. Okay. Rather than I mean that that what what's easy to express is general rather than specific. What's easy to express about organics is specific. Right. I mean, no chemicals other than copper and, copper and sulfur. What's easy to express about biodynamics, it's not that it's easy to express, but what can be expressed about biodynamics is very specific. And it's a, it's a worldview and it's a specific um, series of practices. Whereas sustainability is a worldview, but I can't articulate the specific practices that go along with it. Right. I th- that was the reason I even brought the discussion of the mm-hmm. word up. I mean, we're, we're not there yet. So mm-hmm. again, awareness and being informed and understanding. And um, yet, Sam, it's the most meaningful word for many, many consumers in this country. Right. They would rather buy a sustainable product than not. They would rather buy a wine that's sustainable than a wine that doesn't state it's, that doesn't state it's, it's sustainable. That's really right. hard to say. <laughs> I too, right, which is crazy.
You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Okay, we're back. Um, two more things on the Weimer. Let's quickly taste it and talk about it. But first, um, are vineyards in the Finger Lakes like Weimer, you know, thinking or actually converting to organics and biodynamics? I mean, Weimer made a big step. There are um, others, absolutely. Um, okay. And there, there's a lot of really interesting farming going on in the Finger Lakes. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging place to grow grapes, but challenging places to grow grapes often, pro- often produce the most interesting wines. Interesting wines, right. Yeah. And challenging because of a short season, colder climate, is mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Okay. And sometimes violent climate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's taste this wine. This is the 2019 uh, Riesling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got that you know classic light golden color. Um, this wine just makes me smile. I mean, yeah, it's got I a just, terrific nose. When I opened it, you know, it just kind of lit up the area that I was around. It's got a terrific um, scent, and it also the finish. You know, it, it's got this kind of sweet fruit finish as if you just bit into the most delicious. The fruit is very fruit. expressive. The sweetness is, you know, it's not cloying or anything. No, no, it's, no. It's kind it's, of a beautiful. It's actually you know, very pe- dry. People hear Riesling, but Riesling gets the bad rap. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is a dry wine with a nice little sweetness. It's 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 kind of, you know, mouth coating, too. It's not, mm-hmm. a, you know. It's and pretty, it's very long. The flavors last for minutes. Mm. So I, I just think this is fascinating wine. It's not aggressive. You know, it, it has a delicacy to it. And yet, as you say, it's very rich. Yeah, it I has, think it's lush and concentrated yeah. without it being, you know, any of that. Yeah. And um, yet it, it, it has a sweetness to the fruit and yet it's completely dry. So it, I think it's a really beautiful wine. Um, and it now, just, as I, I say, it just makes me smile. One of the things I've learned on this show is that Riesling is underappreciated and it's certainly a sommelier favorite. I'm sure you've had way more Rieslings than I've had. This Weimer we have in front of us, um, can this stand up, you know, to German Rieslings, you know, in the same price range category? That's a very broad question. I'm not sure it's the right question. Well, no, but it's an interesting question for me because it's exactly why I love Finger Lakes wines. Because in the context of European wines, you know, it's really hard to place a lot of California wine in the context of European wines. California wine is California wine. Right. Um, People place Oregon Pinot Noir in the context of Burgundy. I find that sort of... um, I find that hard to hard to parse. I don't really understand when people say that this Oregon wine is Burgundian. It doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's like nonsensical language. Um, <laughs> Fair. I don't I don't find this wine to be like a Mosul Riesling, 
but I find it to be in a world that is parallel to a great German Riesling. It's, it, it lives in a, it lives in a parallel world. It lives in a parallel universe and it, it, um, it values similar things to great German Riesling, you know, the, or, or the things that the values it presents are similar. Um, right. and so that contrast of intense flavor and delicacy is something that I often find in my favorite German Rieslings. Um, that sort of ghosting of flavor that lasts for minutes is something that I find in, in great German Rieslings. It's a different flavor here than you'd find in Germany. Yep. It's a, it's a different um, structure than you'd find in Germany. But somehow the... Um, the joy I get out of it is similar. Um, that's that's high praise for these wines. I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that. And I, I mean, and Weimer is not the only one making them. There are no, really, I know. Yeah. I mean, Rav, how do you pronounce it? Ravenous. Well, there's Ravine. ravines. Ravine. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there's ravines that that's they're doing terrific work. Um, there's um, red. What was it? Red, red Newt. Well, there's red Newt. Um, but then Nancy Ireland, her, her place, um, she's making really great wine. She's doing a lot of, of Eastern European red wines that are really beautiful. Nice. Um, and then there's, you know, there's Dr. Constantine Frank still making great wines. Right. Well, been um, around a long time. There, there are a lot, there are a number of but people. But though, you know, we, you mentioned a small handful, which if people are interested, they can go around. All right. Time is... Time is uh, of the essence, mm-hmm. so I want to cover everything. Okay. Um, I would like to get into a discussion, and the discussion is based in the context of climate change on the next wine, the 2017 Ridge Syrah Grenache Mataro. Mm-hmm. And if people don't know what Mataro is, it's really Mourvedre, right? Yes. So okay, it's a, so it's tell me why, you, you know, when you and I talked and we wanted to talk about climate, tell me why you selected this wine and its relevance to the discussion. Well, this particular vineyard, um, the Lytton Estate, is a vineyard that's been planted to certain varieties for, I don't know, 140 years. Wow. Um, Zinfandel, Syrah Petit, um, Trying to remember all the, I think there's Carignan there that's been there for a long time, um, and this this part of the estate is a section that was replanted um, in 1999 through 2001. I think that Ridge had bought it in the 90s, and um, it was originally part of the Litton um, William Litton's holdings in this is like the area right between Alexander Valley and Dry Creek Valley. So there are these hills there and Ridge had bought um, their ancient vines that they built and they built a a winery right around those ancient vines um, in 1991. Then they bought this later on. And um, I thought it was important to show what is not indigenous to California, but what is um, appropriate to California. And this wine 
in in the ridge wines that I tasted last year, and I think that ridge grows wines that are appropriate to California, you know, to to where they're growing them. And you know, if you look right. at Montebello, um, Montebello in the Santa Cruz Mountains is a is a fantastic place for Cabernet. It's really what should be grown there. It grows beautifully right. there. Um, in it's the dry one creek. of the best examples of Cabernet. Yeah. It's an amazing wine. One right. of the best examples of Cabernet in the world. Right. Um, and. In the Dry Creek Valley, Ridge grows Zinfandel and Grenache and Petit Syrah and um, Carignan, and those are those are vines that are appropriate for that place. They're not vines that are determined by the market, which might want them to grow Cabernet in Dry Creek Valley. And there's some decent Cabernet in Dry Creek Valley, but from my point of view, it's not the place for Cabernet. It's the place for these varieties. But quick um, question. So these are Rhone varietals. Is this something where they experiment a little, like they plant, you know, for years and they see how the vines go? Are they matching the soils and the climate, you know, to the Southern Rhone or whatever? You know, how do they, how did they know early on that this would succeed? Because they had these vines in the ground at their adjacent vineyard that had been in the ground since 1880. Okay, so, so somebody they, planted them. Yeah. But nobody dealt with that question over 100 years ago. 100 years later, they seem to, you know, thrive or exactly. they do well there. They do well there, yeah. Okay. And um, so finding vines that are appropriate for a site rather than finding vines that, that the proprietor of the site wants to grow is very much a climate change matter. You know, I mean, I, th- I think that if you Expand look Expand on that a little. So um, there's a lot of interest right now in Mediterranean varieties, both in California and South Australia, in um, Eastern European varieties, like Saparavi. You've got Saparavi, um, right. Weimers growing Saparavi, Saparavi in, in Finger Lakes. Um, People are growing it in California. You've got Portuguese varieties that people are experimenting with, um, and especially in California and South Australia. Um, these extreme climates where people have been trying to grow classic French varieties, which in the classic vineyards of France have a very behave in a very different way and, and have a very different environment to sustain them. Um, in the new world, people are beginning to be forced to face up to the fact that they need to plant what's appropriate where they live. And I think that if you, I just, I just served a 2018 Geyserville from Ridge for Thanksgiving and we had some awesome wine around it. And that was the wine that just blew everyone away. So a fairly recent vintage Mm -hmm. of a well-known wine you know, nothing super rare or expensive, and that but showed up. something appropriate for a climate that's changing, but right. it was, it's appropriate, you know, those vines are appropriate for that place, and they're very old, and there are generations of vines there. So in this case, um, at this particular vineyard, you've got vines that were selected from the old vines that Ridge has been farming, and then planted for, you know, planted by David Gates for modern viticulture. 
and um, or or Ridge's form of modern viticulture, which is really you know pre-industrial, I guess you would say, right. um, or they would say, and well, fair term. Um, it is this is an example of, I think, brilliant viticulture. So I really wanted to, I, I wanted to show you this wine because I, I was so blown away by this wine when I tasted it. Let's uh, while you're saying that, let's taste it. So it's a pretty deep dark color. Mm -hmm. You know, even the edges are dark. The nose is kind of jumps out. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, the first thing I got was a little chocolate and spice. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the red fruits. Um, what do you get on the nose? Yeah, when I tasted this wine, um, it, it sort of reminded me of Shattered Rock. Um, you know, people talk a lot about minerality and wine. Yeah. Um, but this wine really, you know, that's the first sort of um, image that it brought to mind was Shattered Rock. You know, people say, what the hell is he talking about, Shattered Rock? You know, when you talk about like wet stone, you know, on a hot day when a stone is wet, it definitely has a smell. You know, if a rock is just sitting there. Maybe it doesn't have much of a smell. But, you know, when you break it down, that you shatter it, you sort of get that mineral stony smell. And that's if what you, you're talking yeah, about, if you right? Take a, if you take a mallet and smash it, smash a rock. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I always think back to vineyards I saw with Gaubi in the Cote Catalanes, maybe in like 1991, I visited him. And um, he had all these vineyards of 100-year-old Carignan up in the hills above Perpignan. And the vineyards themselves looked like the earth had vomited stone. Yeah. They were, they were, it was gray. I'm pretty sure it's granite. Um, but I'm not certain. I just, I think it was granite. It was like a, this gray broken stone and there was nothing but the stone. It was, there was no soil. It was just the stone and it was all stone and the vines were just planted in the stone and they'd been there for a hundred years. Wow. And they made this extraordinary wine and, you know, people say, oh, minerality is, is nonsense. Well, when vines grow in that kind of soil and they, then they produce these wines, that taste like shattered rock. I'm not sure you can say it's nonsense. I mean, no, am I, I, I agree am I hallucinating? With that. You know, maybe there's I'm a big debate about yeah, maybe the I'm word minerality, yeah. you know, in wine as a descriptor. But for some way, you know, you were very skillful in, you know, how it related to this. Um, on the palate, I get, uh, you know, it's a pretty good mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. um, I do get, you know, that peppery. I do get like plum and chocolate. Um, it, it's, it's a beautiful wine. I mean, I think the Syrah gives it the body. Mm -hmm. I think the Grenache obviously always helps with the aromatics. Yeah, I get a lot of red fruit out of this wine. I get a lot of raspberry. Um, yeah. And I get a lot of earthiness in the fruit, which I really love. Um, it's really an old vine character in the fruit, um, this kind of concentrated earthiness that mm. is hard to really explain. I found, not, I found that much more difficult to explain than minerality because there's a, there's, a, there's a form of concentration to flavor in old vine fruit that isn't a concentration in texture. It's a concentration in flavor. It's a, it's a density of flavor that doesn't feel heavy. And so you're saying with older vines, there's an expression of flavor that, what are you saying, is a little more dense? It has depth, or, and, depth and intensity. And now, that's this what is you not, will get from yeah, an old vine. Yeah. Now, this, what's, what's interesting to me about this wine is that this is not an old vine wine. 
and yet it has that same kind of character right. that I tend to find in concentrated Mediterranean varieties that are from very old vines. Is it the blend, the three grapes? The no, way I, think they blend it, I think it is. Or... I think it's the way that they selected the vines and the way they farmed them. That they can and, accomplish what you're describing as, yeah. you know, an older vine taste. Yeah, when which I, is I, a remarkable accomplishment, right? Oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um I I I back in 2001 I was talking with Paul Draper about this vineyard in fact, as well as about old vines. And he was he was sort of telling me what um what he thought was important about the old vines. He said, he said, we also find, with young vines, you can get intense, lovely fruit, but you generally don't get the level of nuance or complexity you get in old vines in the right place and properly taken care of. That's not to say young vines can't give incredibly intense fruit, but you have to get younger vines right. riper to get the same appeal, and that plays into higher alcohol. Right. So these are not young anymore. They're 20 years old. Right. Or almost 20 years old. Um, but his team is getting this kind of concentration without the high alcohol in this wine that I just, I, I think it's, I mean, it, 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 I respond to this wine because I think it's correct. And I don't, I mean, that, that's, that may sound like a really weird thing to say, but to me in the new world, it's hard to find correct wines. Right. This wine is, uh, is this wine was chosen. It was, the the vines were chosen correctly. the The winemaking is the correct winemaking, and you're and you get this you get this um, energy delivered from the wine that to me tells me that I've got things being done right. I, I agree with that. So that is the Ridge Syrah Grenache Mataro. Litton Estate Vineyards 2017 um, from Ridge, which is really one of the legendary winemakers um, in California. Yeah, John um, Olney. You, John Olney is the guy who makes this wine. Yeah, um, and he's he's worked with he's worked with Draper since I think like ninety five, ninety six, or something like that. Yeah, he's been around Paul a lot. Um, I will post. Um, all these wines, all the specifics, so that you know when you listen to the uh, discussion, you know you will have all the wines in front of you, and also you know if your interest is piqued, all the information is there. Um, Josh, I told you an hour would go by pretty quickly, um, and it we, did. <laughs> we probably could spend more time, but I'm not going to let you get away without answering our wine list, which is five questions we ask everybody every week. You okay. are, I interviewed, I interviewed Gary Vaynerchuk for our 200th show. And I think it was his second time on. He goes, haven't I been on this show before? You know, who's been on more than me? I said, Josh Green <laughs> is on every year. So he was very complimentary. He said, I think Josh may have been one of my early or first guests on Wine Library TV. And we had a blast. And yeah. And he he's said, a, a really you know, I guy. love that guy. And I said, that's why I have him on, you know, every year. Um, so I thought that was funny, but I wouldn't let him leave without doing the wine list. So five questions. Don't dwell on them. You know, give me quick answers. Sure. Um, the first question is, what are you drinking now? 
And that's in the context of what's in your fridge, what's on your table. You know, is there a theme at work, you know, that you have 60 bottles in front of you? What's that now, wine? I'm drinking champagne right now, and I'm drinking um, Vigneault Verde. So okay. are, even if, even in the middle of winter, I'm drinking Vigneault Verde and I'm drinking champagne. I love both. And Why not Vigneault Verde? You know, there's no rules. You know, we're, no. we're, we're way beyond the rosé conversation. <laughs> no, no Vigneault- question. And, and Vigneault Verde is much more concentrated than it's ever been. And, and it's refreshing and it's delicious and it's not expensive for you. It's so not expensive for what you get. That's why I'm asking you these questions, because I want people to hear you and go out and try it. All right. Second question. And the fun thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look back at all the uh, past wine lists you did mm-hmm. and see how uh, the commonalities. Favorite wine and food pairing. Not Ooh. something you eat every week, month or whatever. But what in your mind, not what you recommend, but what you like as a great wine and food pairing. Well, I have to say that that Geyserville with, okay, so so my friend did There a, you go. Go ahead. So so my friend who's a chef in, um, Amy Lovelace who's a chef in Berkshire County, she did dinner for a bunch of us for Thanksgiving. Is she like um, a catering chef or does she have a restaurant? She she was at a restaurant called the Dreamway Lodge. Um, okay. Which was a um, point on the Rolling Thunder Review tour. Um back in the oh, 60s. Yeah? And yeah, it's like this great historical music venue um, and restaurant. And unfortunately, they closed last year and it's going to reopen at some point, but she's not going to be the chef there anymore. She's, she'd been there for 14 years. She doesn't um, want to do it anymore. Um, so she's, um, she's cooking still, but she's not, she's not, she's cooking, like she's, she's doing other projects right now. Right. Um, but anyway, so she, one of her projects was doing this fun Thanksgiving dinner and she broke down a turkey um, a local turkey into um, it. She did a turquetta breast. So she wrapped the breast in fennel and mm. sage and roasted it um, as like a like a porchetta. Right. Um, and then she did a braise of the legs and the wings in red wine and um, black mission figs. And so, and she served these two things with wild rice and and some other, you know, Brussels sprouts and things like that. Um, so this wine, the Geyserville with that with that turkey dinner was so extraordinary. That was a perfect pairing. I mean, yeah. that is some pretty fancy turkey preparation. Oh, it was awesome turkey preparation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the wine was just the perfect uh, match for it. All right, so that's a first. All right, third question and. This may be hard because of, you know, what you do and the business you're in. But I've asked you this five other times, and I don't even remember what you said. I always ask people their favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And in your case, I don't want you to be exclusive, you know, where you're picking favorites or leaving somebody out. But whether it's the Berkshires or New York or anywhere, I mean, is that a question you can answer or... Um, I would say I can give you some of my favorite wine restaurants. Okay. Um, Racine's was certainly one of them when it was yeah, in existence. Yeah, and hopefully yeah. it's coming back, right, Josh? I don't know. I have. I mean, I That's know that Pascaline. I know that Pascaline's working on something. Yeah. Um, I would say the Simone is one of my favorite places to go and drink wine. And Tina, which Bond, place? I didn't hear which place. The Simone. Okay. Um, it's on the Upper East Side, 82nd in Lexington. Tina Vaughn and Chip Smith. Chip Smith God, is I've the. I've never been there, Josh. Oh, go 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 go. 
You must go. on your recommendation. We'll, we'll go together sure. if you want. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary I'll be place. Glad to meet you there. Yeah. Um, so Chip Smith is the chef, and Tina is front of house, and she will just pour what wine she thinks will go with the menu wow. that you've ordered. And she has just an extraordinary way of putting wine and food together. Um, the place that I'm excited about right now is Ernesto's, um, which is on the Lower East Side, um, East Broadway, um, east of Chinatown. And um, their wine list is this just ex- extraordinary Spanish wine list. Um, it's Basque food and all of these very, a lot of, a lot of natural wine, um, but also a lot of really esoteric um, regional wines from Spain that you just don't see anywhere. And it's so it's such I a cool ate list. there. I took the family there not that long ago. How do you like I it? For, I I adored it. Mm-hmm. I the Psalm was a woman, I forgot her name, and I usually don't. And I said, You pick the wine, and she brought a terrific Spanish wine. I have a picture, but I don't remember like partita or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was awesome. I think it was I don't even remember. I have to look it up. I, you're 100% right about that. That is truly one of the most interesting restaurants in New York right now. Agree? Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. All right. So those are all good ones, and I'm going to post those. You don't have to go any further. Fourth question, I think the first time you were on the show, because you were on maybe five, seven weeks into the first season, mm-hmm. was favorite all-time wine. And I think when I structured that question, I said, Josh is a cool guy to ask favorite all-time wine. He's probably drank a lot of expensive, you know, fancy vintage wines. That's not where the question is morphed to. What it's morphed to is, what's the favorite all-time wine? Today, what do you peg as that wine that was a gateway wine or a life-changing wine or an open-your-eyes wine? You know, what's a wine that had some significance? um, Hmm. That's so hard to answer. Wow. Um, And and it could be more than one. Mm -hmm. I ask ask that question of a lot of people, actually. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I've never, I I don't know that I've ever had to answer it. Um, There are, you know, I, I, I guess I, I'm reluctant to answer it because it, it ends up sounding really um, not snooty, but um, there's like, I can get to taste wines that other people can't. So it's like the 61 Petrus type answer? Yeah. And um, there's a... Um, but wait, so I'm going to make a deal with you. Okay. Don't tell me the wine... But tell me why that wine was important. Okay, so there's a very expensive wine that a good friend of mine makes. And it, because it's because I'm good friends with this couple that makes it, I get to drink a lot of it. And um, I am often suspicious of wines at that price level. Okay. And... I think that what struck me once about drinking this wine, I think it was like a 1991 that we drank, maybe when it was about 20 years old, so probably like 10 years ago, um, was how it made me feel, how it made, I, I, I felt like I could feel it in my blood. And it was a very different feeling than I get from other wines. And I don't know if it's because I was drinking with people I loved, and they had made it, 
or whether it was because of where it was from or what it was, but it was an extraordinary feeling of like having taken this, this liquid into my system and that the liquid was energizing me in a really positive way. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an alcohol buzz. So that, that's sort of how you answer the question. You know, that, you know, I've had people on that probably felt that way with a less fancy wine yeah. because it's very environmental too. It's the mm -hmm. people, the place, you know, yeah. the fact that they were the makers. Um, but I, I think the way you described it is, you know, what, how it made you feel and what it did to you. And that, that's really what the question's all about. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's a fair answer. I, I will take it as that. And when I, post everything i will appropriately describe what you just said all right cool. the last question and i don't want to put you put any pressure on you but this question there's probably this is my 200 second or third show there's probably nobody better than you to answer this question simply okay, okay? <laughs> and the question is best wine around 15 20 22 bucks I need you to recommend. And the setup has always been my kids are in their mid-late 20s and they can't drink crappy wine anymore. They can't show up at a dinner or give a gift with, you know, supermarket or industrial wine. But they can't afford 40, 50 bucks. So how do you wow at 15, 18, 20, 22 bucks? I need a red and a white. You can be specific. You could be regional. Like I always say, Muscadet ain't a bad value for that, you know, kind of money. Mm -hmm. um, what comes to mind when you're recommending? And so again, not to put that the pressure range, on you, but who yeah. better than you? No, in that price range, I would go to um, Rioja and Alentejo. Rioja in Spain, Alentejo in Portugal. Um, where, All right, so and, we, you know, know, Al, we know Rioja mm -hmm. better than Alentejo. Mm -hmm. um, are there any specific makers that come to mind? There are, but I don't know that I really want to go into okay. that. So um, Rioja is a good value there. And Josh, I was fortunate enough. Again, I took the family to Portugal a couple of years ago, and we spent three, four days in Alentejo, and it was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I've drunk better cheap wine in Alentejo than anywhere else in the world. Um, I always, well, I, I, I always go back Gary to the fact was that, on the show yeah. a couple of weeks ago and he said, I, you know, I asked him the same question. He said, any wine from Portugal, it drinks mm -hmm. like a European 40, $50 wine. I yeah. don't think he was wrong. Right? No. I mean, you can get amazing wines from Douro, from Dow, from Bairada. They're more expensive than, you know, I think what, you know, when, when I think about value wines, um, Dow maybe is the same kind of situation where you can get just extraordinary wines for $10. Um, but Alentejo, the better wines are the less, less expensive wines. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there, there's no ego involved in them. They're just, there's some, there's some great estate wines in Alentejo. Um, but in general, if you go out and you buy a good $15 Alentejo wine, you get a wine that will blow $50 bottles away in other places. So I couldn't and, agree with you more. I think that from this show, people are going to start hearing a little more about and seeing more wines from Alentejo. Mm -hmm. I think the problem isn't how good the wines are. I think it's getting them here and, you know, distribution and all of that. But mm -hmm. th those are great answers. Um, I will post that. Josh, we got to wrap things up. Um, let me do a quick 
uh, wrap up and I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the That's Sam at the mm-hmm. um, Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. But wherever there's an opportunity to hit the subscribe button, hit that. Because if you do that, you'll get Josh's year-end show coming up automatically every year. Um, follow us on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. But we tie those together with the hashtag, The Grape Nation. Um, as I mentioned, um, I will post all of the wines that we drank. I will post Josh's wine list. Um, if you follow the show and follow our social media, you know, we lay that out very specifically. Um, so that'll come. Um, Josh, if we want to find you, Wine and Spirits Magazine, some of the great events that you do, some of the great listings you do, like Top Psalms, Top 100 Wines, where's the best place for people to go? So that would be our website which is wineandspiritsmagazine.com. It's wine is singular and is spelled out. Spirits is plural. Magazine all spelled out.com. We are doing our top 100 event in New York. It's a tasting of top of the wineries that got into our top 100 wineries of the year. And that'll be here in New York in late February. Oh, and, that's coming um, up. Kind yep, of. Great. Yep. And um, we'd love to have your, your friends there. Um, all your listeners should know about it. And I really would love to just wish you and wish all your listeners a great holiday. It's going to be um, an interesting one with the pandemic still raging, but may we all have a good one. So I know. And don't let any of that get in the way of drinking good wine. Josh, I can't thank you enough. Um, like I said, nobody's been on the Grape Nation more than you. Um, you come on at the end of the year and you lay it out for all of us. This year, we were able to get into a little discussion of climate change through the lens of some specific wines. Um, I thought that was terrific. I wish you good health and good holidays. I want to thank our guest, Josh Green. I want to thank our engineer, Kevin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.